Father, we just come to you this morning, and there's no surprise to any of us here that this is kind of a sensitive topic. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us. We ask for grace in this process. We just declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And we ask that through the scriptures and the spirit of truth that we would understand what that means for us when it comes to everyday life. What that means for us when it comes to politics, when it comes to voting, when it comes to living, when it comes to our finances, to our relationships. I ask that we would walk away from this series understanding what it means to, to be followers of Jesus, to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God in all areas of life. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You can all be seated. So some caveats before we jump into the series. First caveat, okay? You need to trust my intentions. Meaning, you don't have to trust my te- three microphones. Amen. I've got three, guys. Actually, four if you count the one that's not working. So I'm just going to put them all around me. You guys think this is funny. It's really stressing me out. I sweat really bad when I have to hold a microphone. I don't like it. Okay. Um, trust my intentions, okay? My intention is this, to, to the best of my ability, to lead us in following Jesus and making him first. So to do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up the scriptures, and I'm going to teach you to the best of my ability. It does not mean that I am right. There are multiple ways to understand the scriptures, and I will try my best to, to um, share the other views with you, but I will also share with you, and I will focus on the one that I believe is the most accurate. And so in this, you do not have to believe my intention is not that you walk out of here thinking and acting the way that I do. My intention is that you would allow the scriptures to mess with you. That you would be willing to chew on the scriptures alone. And then after four weeks of this, if you walk out the exact same as you came in, that's absolutely fine as long as one thing. As long as you sincerely devoted time to focusing the scriptures into prayer. We as Christians have this one thing in common. You know, the door that we walked in as Christians said that we chose to take on Jesus as Savior and also as what? As Lord. We chose to believe in our heart that this is the the human being that God resurrected from the dead with hope he's going to do it for us. And it's also the person who we have chosen to confess lordship over our lives, to, to allow his reign, his rule to be first for us. And so in this, in this series, the, the goal for us, you know, is to find out what does it look like when Jesus is in control of my life? What does this look like? Second caveat here. You need to speak up and talk to me. Not necessarily in service, okay, but you need to come to um, in this process when you have questions, if you find yourself in a place where you're just you're really bothered by something, uh, if you have verses or, or some scriptures that you just say, you know, uh, it just doesn't line up with what you're teaching, please come to us, okay? Um, starting here in about two weeks, after our second Sunday, we will have a night uh, each week where uh, I'll be at Starbucks, and if you have any questions, I want you to come meet me at Starbucks, and we're just going to talk over it with coffee. Cool? Last thing. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you guys to go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 1. 
Depends on who's asking. Depends on how mad you are that day. Depends on who you are. I might even buy the coffee for you if you have some great questions. Here we go. Verse 1, here's what it says. So as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that, that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here is the only thing that I charge you with, meaning here's the only thing that I have scriptural right to require of you. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, meaning we can disagree here and even here, but we cannot break unity in the church. There is no understanding or uh, disagreement that empowers you to say, you are on the outside of my circle now. We can disagree, but the Spirit of Christ always operates through reconciliation. And if you believe the Holy Spirit is leading you to say that this is wrong or, or, or the Holy Spirit is telling me this is not uh, how I'm supposed to operate or this is not what the Scriptures mean, you have absolute freedom to do that. But you do not have freedom to bring division into the body of Christ. Amen. Can we agree on that before we move forward? Now, with all that being said, are you guys ready for a little fun today? All right, here we go. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to the Scriptures, we always tend to paint this really kind of a rosy, heavenly picture of everything. So with Jesus and the Gospels, we often get a fairy tale kind of idea about it. It's almost like uh, when Jesus is doing his stuff, he's saying his parables, he's doing his mission, dying on the cross, all these things. It's as if to us he's doing it in this spiritual, you know, heavenly background. It's so far away from us, it doesn't feel real. It doesn't correlate to what we're going through in life. And so what happens is, you know, we find ourselves saying, yes, I know the scriptures say that, but what does that mean for this situation? Yes, I know that Jesus is supposed to be Lord, but this is this situation. We have an election. We have Trump and Hillary. Jesus didn't have Trump and Hillary, right? Come on, let's loosen up. It's going to be really important for us to be a little bit loose as we, as we, as we dive in. He didn't have these options, right? I mean, you know, he wasn't faced with the worst election in all of the history of the world, okay? He didn't have these two people to choose from, you know? And so surely, yes, we're Christians, yes, yes, yes. But again, we always find ways to separate the gospel, to separate Jesus from everyday life. We did a series about God divorced, the idea that we find ways to separate God from life. We find ways to lock him into Sunday mornings. Uh, he gets locked into our prayer closet. He gets locked into the Bible, and he never makes it to our actual choices. Oh, amen. And I think one of the hardest things for us to do is in this area, how does the gospels, how does these stories, how do the parables, how does, you know, the cross, what does this mean for us in a very practical way? So what we're going to do is this. We're going to build each week. Please do not take each week by itself. You need to, to watch all four. 
you're watching in the camera, okay, all four. Please do not take one week and just flip out about it. You need to watch all four because we're going to build. So this week we're going to start. And the goal this week is just to understand the scriptures. What is happening with Jesus? What does it mean? Uh, the cross and all these things he does, what does it mean? And then each week we're going to get a little bit more focus on today. I will not dodge hard questions. If I haven't proven that yet, I will prove it again. We will not dodge the hard questions, okay, but I'm going to wait to get there. Okay, so each week we're going to get a little bit closer, a little bit more uncomfortable. And then by week four, we're either going to be praising Jesus or, you know, throwing punches, okay? Hopefully not, because we're peacemakers, amen? Okay, here we go. So, first thing for us is, you know, we have to understand these surroundings, the backdrop, you know, what's taking place around Jesus when he's doing these things. Um, what is taking place, it means different things based on context, okay? So, for example, if I were here and I said, you know what, I hate apples, they are the worst, you would say what? I like bananas, I, you know, what? Green Macintosh, whatever, I mean, they're all great, okay. But if I were in an apple store and I said, apples are the worst, would that mean something different? Okay, because of context, what's going on around me. Here's the problem. We never understand the context that Jesus is in. So when he's, when he's standing in the Apple store and he says, I hate apples, they're the worst, we say, but I like bananas. Man, guys, you guys are quiet today. I mean, does that make any sense? So if we don't know the context, we don't know what he really means, okay? So we have to pull the context out of the scriptures. We have to understand why these things are so important. When he walks by the temple of Herod and he says that this temple is going to be destroyed, we don't know why that's significant. We don't know that Herod is actually called the what? He's the king of the Jews at that time. He's been made king because of the Romans. And he is the one that, when Jesus is about to be crucified and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking, are you going to take the throne away from Herod? And when he's standing in front of the temple and he says the temple is going to be destroyed, his followers believe that he's talking about the temple because Herod, Herod, oh boy, Herod built the temple, not Herod, temple, Herod built the temple in an effort to prove to the people of God that it was God who made him king, not the Romans. He built the temple to prove that he was king because Yahweh said for him to be king, not because he sold himself out to his enemies. And so this temple is a symbol of this broken, corrupt power. And so when his disciples hear Jesus say, this is going to be torn down, they say, yes, you're finally going to take the throne. Do you see how meaning changes when you understand the backdrop? Amen? Okay. That's what we're going to do. So the first backdrop, which we have to understand is we have to understand the angst which is going on here. Okay, um, do we have any Cubs fans here? One, three, four, five. Okay, hey, there we go, five fans. 109 years, right? Uh, that's the curse of the goat, right? 109 years. They just won last night. They're heading to the World Series, right? You guys are really quiet. If you guys are Cub fans, you'd be saying something. 109 years of... of Nothing. That fan base is rabid. 
They were dancing in the streets like they were going crazy. And it wasn't because they're going to the World Series. They're dancing going crazy because they've had 109 years of waiting. There's something about waiting that makes it special. Okay? Um, Cleveland, which, by the way, I'm not sure about what's going on in the World Series. We, you know, we have Cleveland and the Cubs. That, that's pretty amazing. Cleveland had gone even longer. The entire city had not won a, you know, a championship in any sport. And when they finally won a title, that city has been absolutely celebrating nonstop for over a year now. It's unbelievable because there's something about waiting that begins to eat at our souls. It, it brings the worst things out of us. But at the same time, when we've been waiting on something and that thing is given to us, there's something that it, it restores, it heals, it, it lifts us up like few things do. And, of course, in the Psalms, we see what it says. It says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what you have to understand about the backdrop of Jesus is that the Jews have had generations, generations, hundreds of years of waiting. The Bible story starts in the garden. Everything's great. Everything's the way it should be. God's in control. He gives control to man. Man gives control to Satan. Everything is messed up. And then God says, I'm going to fix it. And so he takes Israel, and he tries to fix it through Israel, and then they mess it up. And so what we have is the story where because Israel was unfaithful, they've been in exile. Because with Israel, the only way that they understand when God is happy, if God is happy, God gives us our kingdom back. If God is happy, we have land, we have borders, we have walls, we get to be free. And if God is not happy, we're what? The opposite of free is? And so, so Israel is being passed down right now, the context with Jesus. Israel is being passed from one owner to the next. One owner to the next. Um, we see the Assyrians pass them down to Babylonians, which pass them to the Persians, which pass them to the Greeks, which pass them to the Romans. They are going generation after generation, hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years of what? Waiting. Now, oh my goodness, my youngest son, he is the strong-willed, outspoken, high-energy one in the family. And so when he asked me a question, Hey, Dad, can I have donuts? If I say yes, son, just wait. His seconds are like hours to him, okay? So for him, when he's waited five seconds, he's waited five hours. And so when he comes to that point in his mind where it clicks and he says, I know Dad said he's going to get it for me, but he hasn't yet. There's a point in his brain where he switches over and says, Okay, he's not going to get it for me, so I'm going to have to do something about it. All right. So you see this is going. So the Razorbacks have just started the game, and we're being absolutely shellacked in the first quarter. I'm not the happiest person on the planet. Then my oldest son goes, Liam's got the donuts. He's on the floor, and he has the whole thing open. And there were 12 donuts, by the way. So I walk in the kitchen. He's sitting on the floor. He has it open. He has donuts all over him. Okay. When we reach that point where... We have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and then that promise, the person who made the promise, when that person has not come through for us, there is a point where we stop hoping. 
And when we stop hoping, we instantly begin to look for someone else to do it for us. If my father was in the room when I did not get the donuts for Liam, he would have ran straight to my dad. And we all know why. And he would have got the donuts. But there was no one else for him to look to. He could not find another savior. And so he decided to be his own savior and to get it for himself. And the history of Israel is this. They have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and God has not shown. And so now most Jews, most factions have stopped hoping, have stopped believing. And so now there are groups forming. And each group has a different idea about how they are going to find freedom. How can we get what we need? How can we free ourselves? How can we free our children? You know, how can we stop the violence and the pain and the death? How can we finally do it? So I want to teach you the groups. If you guys are taking notes, this should be interesting for you. If you guys have your notes, the first group we have, the Pharisees. You guys have heard about these guys before. Simply put, this is way too simple, by the way. I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot more to it. But the Pharisees believed that if they could operate in true holiness, if they could fully obey Torah, if they could be faithful to God, then that would usher in the time when the Messiah would come. They believed that the reason that the Messiah has not come to save us is because we have not been walking in holiness. So they were some of the most strict people that we see in the Scriptures about following Torah, about being obedient to God. We often paint them in a bad image, but honestly, they were the closest in their understanding to what was actually going to happen. Second group we have here, Sadducees. We see these a lot, you know, in the scriptures. And if you notice in the parables, when Jesus is about to speak, you know, right before he speaks, you know, you'll get the, the heads up that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, or the um, Herodians, or the Essenes, or, you know, uh, you always find out who's around when he's about to answer a question. And it's very important for us to understand because he's about to confront the way that each group believes God was going to free them. Sadducees believed that the way that Israel would gain freedom, the way they'd be able to usher in the kingdom of God, was through political power and wealth. And so what happened here is that, you know, when Rome sweeps in, the only way for them to keep order is to find people who are in Jewish society to support them. Um, who's seen Braveheart? Okay, you've got the lords, right? And, and, and so what happens here, uh, with all the lords of the land orders, you know, what happens here is like in the first part of the movie, they support Braveheart, right? And so like, you know, they come out with their troops and they support him politically, all this stuff. And then what happens at, at you know, at the end of the movie, they all take a bribe, right? And so what happens is, all these lords, they're the ones who sell out Braveheart. And, of course, the whole thing is terrible. But what happens here is you have people of power and influence who could choose to resist the empire. But what they've done is they've sold their influence to Rome. The Sadducees believe that they could actually manipulate Rome and find a way to actually get their own kingdom apart from Rome if they could just play the political game with Rome. Okay? Next group. Essenes, okay? They basically believed that there was no hope at all in the world. Uh, 
Who do you know who's like that? You know, you know, you know. I just wish Jesus would come back before the election. He's an Essene, okay? Like, let's just get a bomb shelter and like put some food in it, you know, like you know, with some guns and like just hide because the world is going to H-E double hockey sticks, right? Okay, that was the Essenes. Um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, you know, uh, you know, that's a bunny trail. Forget that. Um, We've got the zealots, okay? Uh, simply put, very similar to what we see today with ISIS. They believed that, that God was going to empower them to enforce the will and the reign of God. So what they're going to do was terroristic actions. They're famous at the Gospels for randomly stabbing people, for uh, murdering random people just in the streets. They were... Very violent terrorists, okay? I mean, Roman history, we should get to that in a second. We've got the Romans here. And with the Romans, understand that the way that the Romans saw the Jews, this uh, Middle Eastern province, it was understood to them that it was one of the hardest territories to control because these groups were so zealous in their understanding of their theology. They were fully devoted to their God, and they were willing to die for Yahweh. Frankly, uh, sounds very bad, but frankly, it's very similar to what we've seen um, in the Middle Eastern today. It was, it was so hard for them as a foreign power to, to have control and order because these people were willing to fight and to die for what they believed in. And so uh, the Romans had extra garrisons here um, in the cities because they're always afraid that the Jews would fight back and that they'd have an issue on their hands. Now, here's the thing too. Here's something that we have to understand is fresh in the minds of all the Jews who are, who are walking, talking, and living. Here's the first thing that's fresh. Um, maybe a hundred years before Jesus, so one generation before Jesus, there was this thing called the Maccabean Revolt where these Jews were able to defeat the Greeks. They were able to, to free um, all of Israel. And what they did was they murdered everyone, and they forced everyone to be circumcised. Really sweet people they were. And they believed that it was Yahweh who, who enabled them to have the power to bring the will of God to the earth. And so they used the sword. Now, I understand this all sounds very weird. Oh, man, it's terrible. As we're doing this, allow these things to kind of process into like today's world. What does that look like to you, you know, and what you see today, okay? Um, how does that fit into the way that you believe God's going to bring uh, his will to the earth? Now, that was so successful that there are still people who, who are uh, alive at the time of Jesus. That Many people believe that Jesus was going to leave the same type of revolt. And, and so with that, uh, if you guys have time on your own, your own spare time, understand that um, during the hundreds of years of waiting for God to free them, there were prophets who would speak up. And these prophets would, would appear, and, and they'd have these amazing prophecies about how uh, God was going to free them. He was going to restore the kingdom, uh, you know, onto the earth. And uh, what was it? Daniel 7, we had this prophecy about the four beasts. And, and what happens is it's a prophecy from Daniel about the four kingdoms who would reign over Israel. 
the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the Persians, and the Romans. And it was this idea that, that these nations would rule over Israel. But, but when the fourth beast came, when, when the fourth um, kingdom, when Rome ruled Israel, that's when the Messiah would come. And when the, when the Messiah would come, he would crush the crusher. He would be the one to, to defeat the one who's defeated them. He'd be the one to come and to, to strip back the reign of the beast. Now, if, if you guys had time to read it, you should. It's a very violent prophecy, okay? Because, again, you see the way that the, that the Babylonians crushed the Assyrians, the way that the Persians uh, crushed the Babylonians, the way that the Greeks and the Romans came and they crushed them. It was a very violent succession. And so if the Messiah is going to come and to beat this, this powerful army, surely he's going to come and do it the same way that those nations did it. Now, pause with me. This is in the minds of everyone who is around Jesus, okay? Here is what they are expecting to happen. Here is how they understand what the Messiah is going to do. With that in mind, turn to Luke 4.14. Luke 4.14. Really fun kind of side note, you guys are interested about it. There's uh, three prophecies over Jesus um, when he's born, and uh, two of them are even prior to his birth. One is even from his mother. These prophecies about Jesus, these prophecies are, are ones that are the first sign that Jesus is going to be uh, the Messiah. The um, response of his mother when the angel shows up and she tells him he uh, when, uh, uh, he tells her that she's pregnant and the, the baby is going to be the messiah emmanuel all these things she prophesies right back and her prophecy it, it lines up with the books of isaiah and daniel and she prophesies that her son is going to be the one who's going to come and he's going to rip back the hands of the oppressor his own mother has these ideas of how jesus is going to free the people Here's what I'm trying to get through to you. You have to understand how real the surroundings are when Jesus is doing what he's doing. You have to see that. It is far more charged than, than, than the one we have in this country. You don't know what it's like to be oppressed. You don't know what it's like to be controlled, to be ruled, you know, to have someone else over you. You have no idea what that's like. I have no idea what that's like. These people are desperate they're angry, they're frustrated, they've lost hope. And when Jesus is coming, his own family sees him as this type of solution. He has so many pressures, there's so many expectations. Surely, if, if God loves us, surely if he's real, if he cares about us, you know, if God has power, surely he would stop people from being murdered. Surely he would free us. Surely he would allow my children to grow up in a free land. If God is real, if he cares at all, surely he's... I mean, you have to get this. This environment is violent. It's charged. It's angry. It's bitter. Okay? These groups are fighting. I mean, there's murders and bloodshed. I mean, uh, this is a, a nasty situation. And it's so real, 
It's so practical that when Jesus is born, of course, with Herod, who's the one who, who was called the king of the Jews, he's the one who's been put in power uh, by the Romans. When he has people tell him about the prophecies, when he has people tell him about Daniel and, and, and uh, Isaiah, when he connects the dots, what does he do? He orders that all the firstborn, that, that all the male babies born are what? Murdered. This is how real it is. Herod is not thinking Jesus is going to come in and provide salvation from sins for everybody. Herod is worried this baby is going to grow into a king. He's going to gain an army. He's going to murder me and my family. He's going to take away everything that I want. So I'm going to murder every baby. The context is not this lofty, oh, here comes the Messiah, and he, you know, he's the white lamb who's going to be slain, and we're all going to be forgiven of our sins. They're not even thinking about that. What they are thinking is, I want freedom. I want justice. I want this person to pay for what they've done. This is not the context that we think it is. And so what happens for us is when we don't understand the context, then we automatically say, well, this has nothing to do with this. Jesus died for my sins. I don't see what that has to do with who I vote for or with my nation or with wars or with voting or with anything. I don't see what that has to do with anything. But Herod would argue with you. He was willing to murder hundreds, thousands of babies just because he knew exactly what this Messiah was going to come and do. Well, that was fun and light. Amen. Here we go. Um, and so in the context of all this, with all this understanding, with everyone having angst and everyone's waiting for the Messiah to pop up somewhere, here's what Jesus does. He gets baptized. Uh, he, he goes into the desert. He gets tempted. And the first thing he does after the desert, he heads, he heads here to Galilee. And he says this, uh, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Why would news spread about someone who's been baptized? It's been happening to many people. Again, the news about him which is spreading is, I think this might be the guy. There's a reason that news is spreading so quickly. And so in the context of that news, Jesus could say, no, it's not me, I'm not the Messiah, but here's what he does. He, he was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. Uh, he went to Nazareth, where, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went, he went, he went to the synagogue, uh, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free." Pause for a moment. Who's the oppressed? This is not a spiritual oppression. This is not depression or sickness. He is coming to relieve the oppressed. And who is that? The Jews. Who is the oppressor? Rome. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What that means for us is he's coming to proclaim that God has not forgot them. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone 
fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you get it? He reads it, and everyone gets on edge because everyone has heard about this guy. They've, they've heard him teaching. They've heard about what happened when he got baptized. And most importantly, they understand where he is. He's in Nazareth, the exact city which the prophecies proclaimed he would come from. He would come from the Jordan, and he would come from Nazareth. He's fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. And he reads it, and then with all the guts in the world, he says, this is fulfilled now. He has just claimed himself as the Messiah. The Messiah was not the one. He was not only the one who was going to come and bring the forgiveness from sins. That's one of the roles he was going to do. But the, but the Jews actually could have cared less about that. The Jews already had a way out of sin. It was called the law. What the Messiah was going to do was he was going to free them from their oppressor. He was going to restore the kingdom of Israel, which they understood to be what? The kingdom of God. And from this moment forward, his life, everyone is watching him. They're not afraid of this man who's going to give them away to heaven. They're afraid of a man who's going to take control of the region. He's going to shake everything up. They're afraid of a man who's going to raise armies. They're, they're, they're afraid of a man who's going to take everyone in power. He's going to strip them of that power. They're afraid of this man. This is the context of the gospel. The reason you have to understand this is because, again, you cannot believe that the gospel does not give you real, practical meaning for how we act as followers of Jesus in this world. There were actual things on the line. There were people dying. There was pain and questions and confusion and division and hurt and loss and hundreds of years of waiting leading up to this moment. And the answer of Jesus, the answer of God was this. I'm going to make everything right right now. Don't listen to the Pharisees. Don't listen to the Sadducees. It's not going to come by holiness or by political power or by, you know, escaping the world or by war and the sword. The kingdom's going to come through what I'm going to do. Follow me and watch me. Because what you've been waiting for for hundreds of years is fulfilled in your hearing right here in front of you. This is the background, the background, the context of the gospel. Now, if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to go to uh, Matthew 6 and, and just kind of hang out there. So like I said, we're going to take our time with this, okay? Um, we're not going to connect the dots directly this morning. I'm not going to tell you what all this means yet. Uh, it's just important for us to kind of sit here with it and to think about the Scripture, to think about what Jesus did, to think about what it meant. Um, we see in John 6 where he does these miracles, and the response of the Jews, it says in John 6, that they tried to make him king. 
It actually says they tried to make him king by force. What does Jesus do in John 6? He runs away from them. But why? I mean, he's here to bring freedom. He's, he's here to change things. I mean, what better way could Jesus change the way things are than if he actually took back power, right? Who is it who kind of gets to decide the way things are? No one knows. Yeah, the king, right? Caesar, the Romans. Okay, whoever's in power, whoever's on top, has the ability to tell everyone underneath how things are going to happen, right? Why are you going to vote? Because you want the right person on top of the hill, right? Okay, because if that person on top of the hill, that person has the ability to change what happens underneath him. And if we saw Jesus, wouldn't you say, Jesus, shouldn't you be on top of the hill? I mean, it sounds as cheesy as I'll get out, okay? But if you had a candidate who actually looked like Jesus, okay, who, you know, who did signs and wonders actually, you know, looked, whatever, wouldn't you say, I'm voting for that guy? Lord have mercy, so would I. That's what the people said. They said, well, I mean, he's coming to fix everything. So surely if the only way to change this world is to be on top. So we're going to put you on top, Jesus. So in John 6, they take him and they said, we're going to make you king by force. And he runs away and hides from them. I'm not going to tell you what that means. I'm just going to say, sit with that for a minute. If you tried to make him president today, what would happen? Hey, if you're trying to make me president, I'd run away too. <laughs> no, thank you. I think that's why we have the two candidates we have, right? I mean, like, everyone's smart enough for the job. is smart enough to know that they don't want the job, Right? Oh, there we go. Okay, here we go. Now I'm going to hit you again. You guys ready? <laughs> All right, so here's what's going on here. Okay, so here's the context. And, and, and so continually, they're probing him. They're, they're jabbing him. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, his disciples are always confused. They're always trying to understand, when is he going to take back the throne? When is he going to reestablish, you know, the Jews? And it's important to understand that, that, that of his 12, I think he had three zealots, he had two Essenes, I think he had a Sadducee and a Pharisee, all in his party who followed him. And if you notice the questions they asked him, each one would ask him questions based on how they thought God was going to do it. And, and so with his zealots, and I'm sure you can see him in the Gospels, his zealots, who are, who are his followers, are always trying to pull out the sword. Well, come on, it's, it's time to do this thing. And he says, no, put that away. Whoever pulls it out is going to die by it. Yeah, scenes are always like, let's go and pray. And, you know, anyways, okay. You see it all around him continually. There are these groups who are trying to push him and to pull him into restoring order, to making things right. Because surely God cares if these people are dying. Surely God cares about abortion or about refugees or about wars. I mean, surely God cares, right? So why wouldn't God want to take the seat? If God cares about life, if it cares about order and justice and things, why wouldn't God take the White House? So here's what does happen. He goes about with one message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he, when he announces this, 
after he announces, after he explains what the kingdom is, after he explains what the kingdom is not, he always begins to give them a taste of the kingdom. If you notice in the scriptures, it's always after the kingdom is announced. Here comes the sign of wonder. Here comes the healing. Here comes the miraculous miracle. Okay, because he's giving them a taste of what's going to happen. And so he goes through his life, and, you know, he brings the message of the kingdom. He embodies the kingdom as an ambassador. But now it's time for the kingdom of heaven to be established on the earth. And so what we see here, if you guys have your Bibles, I'm sorry I have you in Matthew 6, but if you guys would just kind of um, make a note of Matthew uh, 27. We don't have time to go through the whole verses, but I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. What we see in Matthew 27 is the coronation of Christ. Now, I won't say that in your Bibles. What's going to say is that the crucifixion of Christ or Passion Sunday or something like that. What we see is we see the king who God has chosen, the anointed one, the Christ, the, the Christos, the Messiah, the one who God has put his thumb on and said, this is the one I choose to bring freedom, but this is also when I'm choosing to rule you and to lead you. And so we see the Messiah, the Christ, is now, it's now time for him to take his seat. And so what he does, he comes into the city, and he rides in on what? This amazing, huge monster war horse. <laughs> Young donkey foal, right? He comes in on this little donkey. I mean, what in the world, right? That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's almost like the Pope Mobile, right? Have you guys seen the Pope Mobile? Thing is pathetic, right? Anyways. And so he rides in on this little, you know, this little donkey. Again, what does that mean to us? To us it means nothing. But in the context, it means everything. Because you have to understand this. When a king has conquered a land, they would return with their entire army in suit, and they would lead the army. They would ride in full armor and flags, the flag of their nation, and they would come in in victory. And it was all about trying to put forward the image of power. So they'd come in on this monster horse with their army, with their swords, with their pikes, with their, you know, whatever, and they would come in, and the people would cheer for them. But he comes in on this little colt, and then he's not, he's not flying these flags, these banners of a nation. What he's met with is palm leaves. One of the symbols of palm leaves is peace. And as he rides in his triumphal entry, we see that the next thing that takes place for him is that when a king is going to be coronated, you know, you have this entire ceremony. And it's this idea that, that the king, he comes in in his special garb, and, you know, all the people are, are gathered around him, and he, he walks through, and everyone praises him, and they worship this king. And what you have to understand is that the process of Jesus being beaten, whipped, and stripped, this is his triumphal march to his throne. Where most kings would be praised and worshipped, this king is beaten, spat on, betrayed. And then when you get to the bottom of the steps, that's where they would, they would put some kind of special, you know, coat on you or some kind of, you know, uh, clothing that, that resembles, you know, power and authority. And, of course, with Jesus, what happens to Jesus? He's stripped naked. And then, of course, after this takes place, 
you would finally get the crown. You would kneel down and whoever it was would place the crown on your head. And of course, Jesus gets his crown, doesn't he? Of thorns, isn't it? So now he has his royal robe on of his nakedness, his beaten flesh. He, he has his crown of his power and his authority, which is these thorns, these, these, this symbol of suffering. And now it's time for him to take his seat. And so he takes his seat. But of course, for Jesus, it's not, uh, it's not a marble throne. Of course, it's this wooden instrument of torture. So the king of the world, he takes his seat. And the way that uh, the Apostle Paul describes it as this process where in his eyes, in his understanding of Scripture, in his understanding of the Messiah, he sees that Jesus is triumphing. He, he, he's triumphing over all his enemies, and you know, he's making a mockery of them on the cross, it says. No one in the world saw Jesus making a mockery of his enemies. Everyone saw the exact opposite. No one saw a king taking his throne. No one saw a king who had authority and power. And the reason that no one saw these things was because no one has ever seen a king or power like this one. And the reason that we still don't understand what this means for us as Christians is because we still don't understand a power and a king and a reign like this one. A king who would choose to change the world not with force, but with sacrifice and with blood. And so what happens here is the Jews, the very people who have been waiting for us coming for so many years, are, are so unable to accept this king. What actual change can this person do? What good can this man do? So you tell me this is the guy, this is the answer of God to all the problems of the world is this. He can't make any real change. He can't stop the death or, or poverty or pain or you know, injustice. He can't do anything. He's on a cross. He's dead. What good is this man to us? And we have to be very careful with this because most of us still look at the cross and say, yes, I know. Yes, I know. But what, what change is that really going to bring? What about the economy? What about ISIS? What about, what about abortion? What good is that really going to do? With this, because these are real problems, you know. We know he died for our sins and all, but yeah, you know, he's king and lord, whatever. But what good is that really going to do here? 
You have to understand this. Jesus sincerely believed that this was the answer to every problem on the earth. This was the way that God was going to bring justice to the entire planet. This is how God is going to make things right. This is how God is going to to stop all of the oppression and the evil on the earth. This was God's answer. This was God's solution. And we still are torn because we cannot fathom what good it can do. None of us understand how any change can actually happen until someone gets on top and they make changes. But what you have to understand is that the kingdom of heaven, from the moment that Jesus was on that cross and, you know, he breathed his last breath, the kingdom of heaven has been invading the earth from the ground up, not from the top down. The incarnation itself is a picture of this. God does not come down in fire and lightning with angels and just kill all the bad guys and make everything right. He comes from the top down. He comes and he comes as a child, as a baby. He leaves power and authority and might and, 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 and force. I mean, I mean, he could do whatever he wanted to do. But he leaves it and he comes in flesh, in weakness. So this morning, we don't have to figure out, you know, how all this connects and, and, you know, what this means yet. But it's important to let it just turn inside of us. Have we looked at Jesus on the cross? Have we looked at what he's done? Have we considered his reign and his kingdom? Have we considered that in some way? Have we just said, yeah, 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 but that's for something else. Because that's not going to make any change here. How's that going to stop ISIS? This is where we have to start. We're not all going to end up on the same conclusion, but this is where every follower of Jesus must start. If we are followers of Jesus, if he is truly our Lord, if this is the kingdom which he's declared us to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, those who would speak for him, who would represent him. We have to let this question settle inside of our hearts. And we have to ask ourselves this question, why do we believe that this is not, not enough to make real change on the earth? There's no way that this king can actually make any real change on the earth, so I have to go find someone else to fix things. Would you guys all stand with me? 